0: Okay, we are good to go. Um, let's start by um, anyone feeling comfortable to share anything about this past week. We, we talked about how we're gonna just start to observe a little bit about the knocks on our door, right? On The knocks on our um, mind, like what do we choose to think about, right? We can't choose what we think of but we do have control what we think about because last week we talked about how thought is actually a behavior right and we can control what we think about so did anyone kind of pay attention to that a little bit more this week we said we're not even we don't even want to have to do anything just start paying attention on how many things are knocking on your door and how many things are you allowing in without really thinking about whether it deserves to be there or not anyone want to share Yes, I um I had a lot of insomnia this past week, which I usually do around the time of the full moon. Mm. And so as I'm laying there in bed trying to sleep, I'm thinking, I mean, my brain is like whirling around the place for sure. It was all it was definitely all over the place. And to be able to just take time and just like go wow, this is pretty amazing. <laughs> and how many different thoughts. Yeah. Just observing like how many thoughts actually come through our mind every single second, every single minute and realizing that we actually, um, do get to control what we focus on. What are what is the actual thing that we are going to pay attention to? And someone wrote in the chat, yes, caught myself twice and actively decided to close the door on a thought. That's amazing. Right. We can act like when a thought is not serving us, if we actively, recognize that and we shut the door, right? Or we don't even open it. That is um, very, very powerful. Well, thank you for sharing. We're gonna move right along. If anyone wants to add anything um, during class, remember, use the chat box. I'm happy to answer questions. I love to answer questions. And like I always say, sometimes I'll have answers, sometimes I won't, but I will always do my best. And if we don't have an answer, I will ask the people who do. Okay. So we are in chapter five. Um, I like to start class with a little review. And actually this time we're going to spend a little bit more time on a review because we're actually going to review, but then add a couple points because I feel now that we have a little bit more knowledge, we can go back and understand things in a little bit more depth that I didn't feel like was the right time for right away. So in our review, we're actually going to introduce a more, um, a deeper way of understanding and look at, looking at a few things. Okay. So bear with me and um, remember, always um, ask if something is not clear. Okay. Chapter one, chapter one, we were introduced to three types of people. Tzadik, Russia, Beinani. Okay. Um, remember, we're not really translating these names because they don't have good English translation. So we, we know now what those what those personalities are and what do we focus on in this book? This book is the book of the in-betweeners, right? Like we, this is the book where we are working and striving towards being a Bainani. Okay. Um, But to understand how these like more about these people and these categories and how they operate, we need to understand that we have two souls. And the first chapter introduced us to the animal soul. Why the animal soul first? Because that's what we get first. We get the animal soul first. And the animal, if we're going to translate, if we're going to talk about what the animal soul's you know, mode of operating is, in one sentence, it's self-preservation, right? Self-preservation and self-perpetuation. It, we, it wants to make sure that we are staying alive, we are alive, and everything surrounds that, Okay. Then we went into chapter two, where we talked about the godly soul. The godly soul is the exact opposite of the animal soul. So what would the animal soul, if the animal soul's um, mode of operating is self-preservation, then the godly soul's MO, right, is self-annihilation or selflessness, okay? It's the exact opposite. So this is where I want to get into a little bit more in depth about the difference between the animal soul and the godly soul. Because we we could easily think that the godly soul is just like an upgraded version of the animal soul, right? So let me let me tell you what I mean. We could think like okay, the animal soul has desires that are not necessarily on par with our godly journey right we have we have it's very physical and mundane desires so and so and the godly soul it's the it has desires also but they're just better desires right like what's a good example like let's take food because food's always a good example right like the animal soul is like when you crave like greasy pizza that's like you know, um, not high quality, but just like good pizza and fries, right? The an- And and the godly soul, you might think is like, you know, like a brick oven artisan pizza, right? With like, you know, feta cheese and like white cheese, whatever, I don't eat pizza. So whatever makes pizza delicious, you know, and fancy, like fancy pizza, right? So we could think that the animal soul is like greasy pizza. The, the godly soul is um, brick oven, fancy pizza. And and it's just an upgraded version of our desires. But the Tanya is not saying that. We're not just like, it's not just a better version. The Godly soul is not just a better version of the animal soul. Okay. We're not saying that. What we're saying is that the body and the soul, and when I, when I refer to body right now, I mean the animal soul, which is kind of lives through our body are, they, like, they are total opposite directions. They have nothing in common. Okay. So they're, they're going in two completely directions and the animal soul wants self perpetuation, right? Which makes sense, right? Because that's how we exist. And the animal soul kind of has this, like, you know, um, vicious cycle or like what comes first the chicken or the egg we eat to exist we exist to eat we you know i'm saying like it's this self-perpetuation cycle and it makes sense for the animal soul. we need that to to exist right but that's what the existence of the animal soul is the godly soul it exists to surrender its existence What are we saying about the godly soul? The godly soul comes down into this world to exist. And what's its goal? To eventually reunite with God, which means it will cease to exist. Okay. So you see how we're like, we have the animal soul and the godly soul have totally different goals. They're not working in the same direction as at all. So it's, I think it's really, uh, it's subtle, but it's important for us to realize it's not like the godly soul is just a better version of our desires and our physical life, right? It's, it's not at all on the same page. The animal soul wants to exist and the godly soul wants to cease to exist. And the whole reason why it exists is so it can eventually cease to exist. Okay. You're with me so far. Okay. So, um, And then what's interesting is, is that the animal soul, yes, its goal is for self-perpetuation. But but a lot of times what happens is that when we're so involved in our self-perpetuation, what does that lead to? self-enhancement, self-fulfillment, right? Like we don't usually stop at just existing, right? The animal soul wants to exist and it wants to exist well, right? It wants to feel like it has a purpose. It wants to live the good life, right? So um, that's the direction of the animal soul. Now, the godly soul wants self-annihilation, okay? But when I say the word annihilation, what what does that bring up for you? Like I can feel like annihilation is very um, extreme, right? And it can be like, sometimes we it feels like it might be a negative connotation. I think annihilation has, could be used that way but in the Tanya, it is not meant to be um, a destructive, right? It's not a destructive, um, it's not a destructive word. If you think about it, um, annihilation is actually pretty peaceful. Like if I were to, like, it's interesting because if you were like to destroy something, right? Like if you were to like take a, I don't know, like a cup, a plastic cup and just like crush it and destroy it, would it cease to exist? It's still there, right? It's just destroyed. Self-annihilation is not a violent term. It's just something that happens actually quite peacefully. And I want to explain to you a little bit more what I mean by that. What is is another way that we use the word annihilation, right? I'm sure a lot of you have heard the term of creation being created ex nihilo, right? What does ex nihilo mean? Something from nothing, right? And we talk about how the fact that God created the world or the world was created something from nothing, That's actually not true. Like that actually doesn't make any sense because how we don't really mean nothing because what existed before the world? What was in existence before the world? God, right? God existed before the world. God is the ultimate something. So what are we saying when the world is created ex nihilo? Put that aside for a second. Everyone is sitting, either you're sitting by a desk or you have a table, right? The table has existence, correct? Now, it would cease to exist if God stopped creating it, right? The the whole way this world exists is that God is constantly willing it to exist. So it constantly exists, right? So what would happen if God stopped creating this table, right? It would revert to nothingness. So a table is relative existence. Okay, What do I mean by that? It's essentially nothingness. So it exists, but it doesn't have its own existence. You following me? Anything physical in this world exists. It's here. It's physical. But it doesn't have inherently, what is it? Inherently, it's nothing. Inherently, it doesn't have its own existence. When God stops creating it, it would cease to exist and just, and just become one with God. So the table, our physical things that we see in this world exist but don't have its own existence. But, and God equals existence. God is the ultimate existence. OK, so what are we saying when the world was created ex nihilo? What are we saying? What we're really saying is that relative something was created from the absolute something. OK, so relative something, the physical world, which is only something relatively, was created from the ultimate something that always exists. So really saying ex nihilo, something from nothing is not the right translation. It's something from the ultimate something, but relative something, because that something wouldn't exist if it wasn't being created by God. Have I completely lost you? Are we good? Yes, I have completely lost you. No. Okay. We're good. If I have completely lost you, put it in the chat box and we'll, we'll go over this again. So when we say that God, the godly soul yearns for self-annihilation, we don't mean it in a negative and destructive way, although it's easily misdirected in that point. We can easily find people who, even in the name of spirituality, are misdirecting their self-annihilation. Okay, using it negatively, being destructive of their bodies. Like that is not what it means to to have self-annihilation. That's not the godly way to have self-annihilation. But because it's such an an easily misdirected thing. So that's why when we say self-annihilation, it so easily comes to our mind something destructive or negative. But that is not the way that Tanya sees it. Easily misdirected, but no. What it means is that I'm becoming one with the real one i when i when i say self-annihilation i'm becoming one with the ultimate and real one okay now guess what you don't even have to die to do it when we say self-annihilation we're not saying you have to die what's a good example of a misdirected self annihilation nadav and Avihu, right who went into the holy of holies because they wanted to Um, connect and be one with God, that was misdirected. Yes, good intentions, but that was misdirected self-annihilation. So we're not saying we, we're not supposed, self-annihilation is not supposed to lead to death. Okay. That's easy. Dying for God is easier than living for God, actually. Okay. So what does it mean when we have self-annihilation? It means that we set aside our ego did i tell you i think i said a few classes ago about the edging god out right the ego edging god out right so we set aside the ego and we allow ourselves to be an instrument and a tool for god okay so that's what we mean by self-annihilation it's a very actually loving and peaceful process okay um when this we're going to discuss this in, in many later chapters in the Tanya, but just to give us a little bit of a preview. When are we when we're totally focused on a mitzvah? When we're totally focused on God's will and doing what Hashem wants, that is self-annihilation. Okay, that's what we mean by self-annihilation. Fulfilling a mitzvah, doing God's will. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Um, doing God's will and that is when you allow yourself to be a vehicle for God, you're putting aside your ego, right? Which ego, it's, it's hard for God to coexist with us when, when our ego is taking up all the space, right? In order to have space for God, we need to make space for him, okay? So that is what we mean by self annihilation. Now, why did I even bring all this up, right? This, remember, we're still in the chapter two review, Okay, why did I bring this up? Because I want, because now that we have a little bit more of a foundation, I wanted to explain more of the difference between the animal soul and the godly soul, right? We, we can go deeper. We're not saying that the animal soul is just not good desires and the godly soul is better desires, right? That's just not what we're saying. We're saying we're here, we're on two different paths. Okay. We have the path of self-preservation that usually leads to self-enhancement and self-fulfillment. And we have the path of self-annihilation. What does self-annihilation mean? It means that we're, we want to connect and we want to become one with the ultimate oneness, right? And how do we do that? Through doing God's will, because that allows us to make space for God. Okay. So we are, we are now finished reviewing chapter two with a little bit of an addendum to help us understand deeper what 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 our two soul why is it why do I want you to understand this so clearly is because guess what we have both of those things inside of us like this is not like oh there's one thing here and there's one thing here we have these two things that are on completely different paths they're not even like on the same page inside of us That's what we're contending with, okay? So I just, I always want to bring that point home because I think that's probably one of the most powerful things I have learned in Tanya is that we have this journey of this like self-character development and connection with God. The reason why this journey is a lifetime journey and the reason why we have to spend so much time on it is because we have this constant battle that's making it, a challenge, right? This is not a piece of cake, okay? Okay, so on to chapter three. What did we learn in chapter three? We learned that the, how does the soul express its, uh, sorry, no, that was chapter three, the anatomy of the soul. What does, is the soul made up of? 10 capacities, right? What are the 10 capacities? It's a, a direct mirror of God. We say God has 10 spheros. What are, what are, how did we translate spheros? It's hard to translate, but how did we translate it? The interface between the infin- infinity and finite. It's how God, whose infinity relates to us who are finite, okay? What we had two, ca- two categories for these faculties, emotional and intellectual. How do we refer to them? parent child right intellectual faculties are parents are and which are which then give birth to the emotions what would we say what you think about is what you're going to care about right and then we took that even a step further in chapter 4 that how, so now we know the anatomy of the soul, but what is this, how does the soul express itself? It's very nice we have these 10 faculties, but they're still not tangible. How do these, how does the soul express itself? Thought, speech, and action. What did we focus mostly on? Because the other two are really understandable. Thought, speech, and action makes sense that it's a behavior. Thought is, we had to really delve into how we know and understand that thought's a behavior, correct? And we focused, and we, we're not going to go into it too much because we just did it last week, the knock on the door. You, can, you can't control what you think of, but you can control what you think about. And we focus mostly, the Tanya focus mostly on our behavior choices. That's what we're going to spend most of the Tanya on, not the composition of the soul. Like It's good to know just as information, but what we're going to focus on mostly is our behaviors right? Um, and that's what we are um, going to be doing for the rest of the Tanya. Okay, we made it to chapter five. Any questions so far? It was a review, but like I threw a whole bunch of new things in the review. Okay, to so just to keep it spicy. Um, all right, chapter five. Just like there are clothing for the soul, The soul also has food. The soul needs to be nourished, right? We need to feed the soul. So what is the soul's food? And that's what this chapter is about. I also had time a little bit to go um, a little deeper into chapter two is because chapter five is actually a pretty short chapter. um, And we are going to be able to um, delve into chapter five as much as we need to. And we wouldn't have, it wouldn't be, we won't be going over time. Okay. Okay. So, what's the difference between food and clothing? Okay. Eating, when we eat, what's so fascinating about eating, and I actually, before I studied Tanya, I actually never, I never like, I never thought of it that way. But food sticks, like you eat food and it becomes one with you. Like it actually, the food that you eat, like actually has your DNA. Like if you would like if you were doing an autopsy and you would take out the stomach contents of somebody, you would actually find that person's DNA on the food, right? So when you eat, it literally becomes part of you. Okay, clothing is on you, right? And when you when you 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 see it when you're wearing it, but if you take it off, it's not a part of you anymore. Okay, and David HaMelech says, "B'tayrascha besoch b'so- may I." Torah is in my innards. It's a funny thing to say, because usually you think we're using our mind, right? We're learning with our mind. We're using our brain. Like, Wouldn't it make more sense to say that Torah is in our brain? But no, that's exactly the point. Because Torah, you have to digest it. You have to internalize it. And when you learn and you spend time analyzing and digesting and thinking about it, it becomes part of you. Like you cannot unknow something. Once you know something, there's so many things. Isn't there things in this, in this? Has, haven't you ever come across something that you wish you never knew? Like you want to unknow something? Like you can't unknow something. Okay. So a good example which we're gonna use food again, because like food's the best. But um, like let's say you're serving like a dessert and you know, and you bring it out to the table and you're like, there was a cockroach in the dessert, but it's not here anymore. Right? Like, excuse me? Like, you think I'm going to eat that now? Like, even if it's not there anymore, you can't unknow the fact that there was a cockroach sitting in your jello. Okay? Like, that's what we mean. Like, once you learn Torah, it becomes part of you. You cannot not know it anymore. You cannot, like, ignore it. Okay? So Torah, like it's not, Torah is not, like when we learn Torah, it's not just facts. We're not just learning facts, right? Torah is a perspective. When we learn, it changes our perspective on how we see the world, how we see ourselves, how we see our fellow people. Like it changes who we are, whether you like it or not, whether it's subtle or it's not subtle. What if you forget what you've learned? It doesn't matter necessarily because, you know, some part of you is still like, maybe you, maybe you, you're not accessing it automatically, but it's actually a very good question because like, also like, what if somebody has dementia, right? Like, is that Torah still becoming like a a scholar who learned Torah and then all of a sudden, you know, gets older, has dementia. Like, is he not a scholar anymore? Right. But it's a good question also because like, we're not saying that you learn something, you read it on the page and all of a sudden you're a changed person, right? Like you have to learn it. You have to um, be engaged in it. You have to learn something. What does the Torah say also? you know, it only is considered effort if you learn it 101 times. 100 times is normal. Like you have to learn something 100 times. 101 times is you're going above and beyond. But 100 times you have to, um, you have to really engage, right? So even if you're like not remembering every single thing that you learned, it's still becoming part of you. And the next time you learn it again, it's not going like, to be like you're learning it from scratch, right? You have that foundation um, because that it's like a layered, it's a layered system, right? It's the same thing with food, right? Like, excuse like my, I'm very, very anti-diet, but I'm just using this, this analogy for just for analogy's sake, but like, you don't get, you don't gain weight from the one cookie, right? You gain weight if you eat five cookies every single day, right? So like, it's a layering process. So you're not going to become, you're not, your perspective isn't going to change if you sit down and learn for five minutes. It will change if you sit and learn for five minutes every day, right? Like, it is a layering process. Okay. So when we wear clothing, and remember, we're the clothing of the of the neshama, the, of the godly soul, we're saying is, is very, very powerful. It takes the soul to a whole new level. But we still have to understand that when we're wearing clothing, it is only affecting or having effect when we're wearing the clothing. So when we're putting on to fill-in or lighting Shabbos candles, it's during those moments that we're that we're becoming completely one with God. When that moment is over, we don't have the same connection. We have to do another mitzvah to have another connection. That's not how it is with Torah learning. First of all, Torah is very, very special because it's both. It's a mitzvah, and it has the, the aspects of, of learning Torah, too. So when we learn Torah, actually, the most um, uh, significant and powerful time of learning Torah is really after you learn it, right? Like when we're learning it, we're learning it. But it's what happens after the class. It's what happens when you're thinking about it later. That's even more powerful than the class itself. So the Torah sticks with you always, no matter what. Mitzvah has its special capabilities, but during the moment. Okay? So the mitzvah is the clothing and the food. And I actually want to read, you, read to you something from the green Tanya. Guys, everybody needs to have one of these. Okay? Like, I... I and we're not learning the Tanya from inside, but this is a huge, amazing resource. I want to read you something from the actual Tanya because I can't say it better myself. And this is, the, this is bringing home the point of it being a mitzvah, clothing and food. Okay. Why, why, how does that make sense? How could something be clothing and food? Physically, it is impossible to engulf something and at the same time be engulfed by it. Clothing engulfs something, right? And food is you're being is being engulfed by you. So, and physically, there's nothing in the world that does that, right? Um, yet, when you study Torah, that is precisely what happens. You engulf, you master the Torah, and it engulfs, captivates you. Okay. Do do you hear what I'm saying? Like it's you are engulfing. Torah and Torah is engulfing you at the same time, right? You are digesting Torah and it's captivating and it's owning you. You're being captivated by it. There's nothing else that does that. You, there's no other physical example that does that. Um, and, and one more paragraph I'm going to read. There is, however, a key distinction. When you study astronomy, for example, you do not become one with the planets themselves. Right? Just because you're studying astronomy and you're studying the plants doesn't mean you're becoming one with the plants. Your mind unites with the concept of the plants. There remains an inherent duality between the idea and the subject. With Torah, you are becoming one with actually what you're reading. You're becoming one with God because Torah is God. So it is a unique, unique opportunity that only happens when you study Torah. To be engulfed by something and and, and it should engulf you meaning it's the clothing and the food at the same time, only Torah can accomplish. Oh my gosh, I cannot believe you asked that question. Isn't Torah already familiar to the soul before you learn it? We're gonna get there. I'm gonna answer that question in a few minutes, okay? Excellent question. Okay, so we have this special thing that God allows us to experience. Right. And this special thing is learning Torah. Okay. Um, and this is how we feed our soul. Okay. Remember when I said in the first class, I'm like, you can't, um, expect to feel godly or to have a spiritual connection if you don't like feed it and foster it. Like you have, you have to pay attention to it. It's not gonna, it's not gonna just always be there without any attention. And I kind of compared it to like a marriage, right? Like you can't just, your marriage. you know, if you don't pay attention to your marriage, it's not going to just be a good marriage without any effort or work or attention. So with our soul, like you have to feed it. You can't just, oh, I have a godly soul. Thank you, God, so much. I have a godly soul. Now I'm going to feel all spiritual. Like, you have to pay attention to it. You have to feed it. And what is it, Tanya, telling us? What's the food of the soul? Torah. Torah is the food of the soul. Now, to address this um, question, like, isn't Torah already familiar to the soul before you learn it? So there's two perspectives on what happens when we study Torah, Okay. So one perspective is, is that the godly soul doesn't need Torah. The godly soul is inherently um, born and created with like intuitively serving God. Like it, it intuitively wants to serve God. So Torah is not necessarily for the godly soul. What is Torah for? Torah is for the animal soul. That it should know how to behave and act godly, okay? So our godly soul um, inherently, intuitively, wants to serve God. What do we need Torah for? We need Torah for our godly soul. We want to get our godly soul on board, right? Like, how do we teach our godly soul to be um, more in, godly oriented? And that's where Torah comes in. There's another way to explain, and I think they're actually not even contradictory. Um, it's just another. It's a, go go a little bit deeper. Is our Yes, our godly soul knows intuitively um, what God wants and how to behave in a godly way, correct? But it doesn't understand why, right? It knows to do what it's to do because it's programmed that way. But it doesn't have a deeper understanding or a deeper connection or appreciation of why we do the Torah mitzvahs right? Why are, What are we even doing? So that's where the Torah comes in, is that it helps the soul understand and get deeper in their connection with God, okay? And um, deeper insight provides intimacy with God. That's how we get more intimate with God. The deeper we go, the more we pay attention, the more we delve into it. That is how we get closer to God, intimacy, I'm doing another play on words into me, see. Okay. When we have intimacy with someone, it's when we pay attention to what, who that person is inside. Okay. So we have, um, Oh, did I also tell you another way to understand Torah is that it's not software. It's hardware. Okay. It becomes your worldview. The more you study Torah, it's, it's your hardware it becomes who you are, what your perspective is and how you see everything. Okay. So we, um, I'm going to do a quick review. I have some time for questions. Like I said, chapter five is pretty short. Um, it really is just bringing home the point of your food for the soul. Okay. And Uh, I will do a quick review, but even even during the review, if there's any questions that come up, let me know, and then we will go into our meditation. Okay. so what did we start off by saying? That Torah, I mean, just like the soul needs clothing, the soul needs food. What's the difference between clothing and food? Food becomes part of us. once we eat it, like it becomes who we are. It comes with us wherever we go, right? Clothing is only effect. It only has effect when you're wearing the clothing. Once you take off the clothing, it is not affecting you anymore. So for example, when we do mitzvos, actions, by the way, we're going to talk about in chapter 35, like the, um, the advantages over, of mitzvos over everything else. You can't like when we learn, Tanya, I want you to always remember that everything is relative. Right now, we happen to be discussing how Torah is the best, amazing, most greatest thing that can happen. In 30 chapters, we're going to tell you why mitzvahs are the most amazing uh, thing that could happen. Both are true. It's just what perspective are you coming from? So I always say, and Tanya, everything is relative. When you want to say what's greater, Torah or mitzvahs, what's the answer going to be? Well, it depends when depends what you're trying to accomplish, depends what you're trying to do, right? So here in this chapter, we're extolling the virtues of Torah, right? So we're, we're, we're understanding how special Torah is and Torah is the only thing that you can become completely one with because what happens when you're learning Torah, you're being engulfed by it and it's engulfing you. There's nothing else in the world that can do that, okay? So Torah happens to be, I'm oh, sorry, I have this hair that's just like in my face, um, Torah happens to be clothing and food at the same time. Okay. So, um, I'm trying to think if I'm missing any other points and okay. And the other really important point is that I really feel is very powerful is that once you know something, you can't unknow it. Okay. It becomes part of you. Um, and I think, that is to our huge advantage if i want to make it more practical because we are not i mean i'm not i'm not going to speak for these amazing people in this group but i'm not a torah scholar i don't sit all day and learn torah that's not practical right um and tanya contrary to a lot of people's experience is a practical book right this is called practical Tanya. We want to apply it to our lives. We don't just want to learn it and be like, well, that's a nice concept, but like, what does that have to do with me? And what I, what the point is that I take away from this chapter is the fact that if we take the time to nourish our soul with Torah, it is, it has a lasting effect. Okay. It, it builds on each other. So I say maybe maybe it's possible to spend five minutes a day, right? And there's all these amazing books that have like Hasidic thought or like, you know, they, or they're broken up into like Parsha or chapters, like literally a page or two to read. Like what happens if you would take five minutes? We all have five minutes, guys. We all have five minutes. Um, and we learn Torah. What happens is that, first of all, in those five minutes, you're completely connecting with God. But what did we learn about Torah? Is that it lasts. It's not like a other It's not like other mitzvahs. It's something that becomes part of you. So every single time you do it, you're going to be building on what you learned the next day, right? And that, so that question that was asked, what if you forget what you learned? It's, who cares, right? Like, because it slowly... Becoming part of you. Like, if you want to make an effective change, don't do it quickly, right? It's not going to last. It was, we have this um, phrase in our community where, and it's, it's like this big joke now, like everything we call every, baby steps, right? Baby steps. You want to, you want to, all of a sudden, you want to kosher your house? Wait, 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 wait a second. Baby steps, right? First, maybe only buy kosher food in the grocery. First, don't eat out at restaurants. Like let's like slow, like baby steps because if you do something extreme right away, it's not gonna last, okay? It's not sustainable. We cannot, it's great to be um, emotionally inspired. Inspiration is great, but inspiration doesn't last. Okay. It's like a big ball of fire, like a big fireworks explosion. Like it's great. It's beautiful. It's important, but it's not what's going to take you to the next level. It's not what's going to give you a steady service of Hashem. So I know, you know, what are we going to come away? I always like to come away with something in this chapter is that it's a little bit connected to what we learned last chapter, right? It's what you think about is what you're going to care about, right? So what you choose to put in your mind is what you're going to, it's going to start to affect the way you think and the way you act and the way you behave. Guys, I'm talking to myself here, like major, like self preaching because I need this. So um, when, like, if we take what we learned last week about what we think about is so powerful and we can control what we think about, what happens if we take five minutes of that, of our day to think about something from the Torah? right? And it could be anything, like it could be medrash, it could be halacha, it could be chassidus, it could be, doesn't matter, what do you gravitate towards? It could be chumash, it could be, you know, it could be whatever you want, daily Torah thought, whatever. Then, first of all, we're choosing to think about something godly, and now what we learned, what we added this week, what we didn't know last week, is that the lasting effects, right? The most powerful Um, time of learning is not during the learning, it's after the learning. It's like, what do you do after, this is why I end our Tanya class with meditation, exactly for this reason. What are we doing after we learn the information, right? Do you go on a walk and talk about it with your friends? Do you think about it, you know, and I like to end this class with a meditation because that just kind of puts it into practice. Like I, we, we learned all this stuff and now like, let's just sit with it for a minute and let it digest and let it assimilate into who we are because that, um, that is lasting change. Lasting change doesn't mean you study Torah for five hours in the day. That's really wonderful, but it's not, I don't think it's practical for anyone sitting here, right? Lasting change is five minutes, five minutes. And then, you never know when it's gonna pop up in your day. Like, oh my gosh, like we talked about this in class. Like, huh, I wanna think about that more, right? My goal of the Tanya class is to like, just start your brain going. And I hope that it comes up for you a few times in the week. Like, oh, interesting. We talked about that in Tanya class. Like, I wonder like, how it applies to this situation, or I wonder how I can apply it to my life, or I wonder how to think about it. So that's my goal for the Tanya class. I hope that, you know, we, we get there together. Um, but that is what we learned in this class. Last class, we learned about the foods, cl- uh, the soul's clothing. This, this class, we learned about this soul's food. What nourishes the soul? Now, both souls, right? Godly. soul. we we learned now that the Torah has to nourish our godly soul and our animal soul, our godly soul, because it needs to take it to the next level, even though it inherently knows what it has to do, it needs to be, it needs to go deeper to create that intimacy with God. And it's nourishing the animal soul because the animal soul is clueless. So this is like the animal, this is teaching the animal soul how to behave. Like you want to know how to behave? This is how we do it. Okay. Any questions before we head to our meditation? Best diet, non-fattening food for the body. Totally. (laughs) Okay. Get comfortable. Okay. just find my spot here. I wonder, I'm like, wrong chapter. Okay. Settle in, start to like, feel like, feel where your body is physically. Take a deep breath. And in your exhale, gently close your eyes. Take a Deep breath in through your nose, out through your mouth. Let your breath lead you. Do not try to change it. Notice, is your breath fast, quick, or slow, shallow, or deep? Don't change it, just observe it. A little tip is I find that when we can um, put a count to our breath, like four four count exhale, four count inhale, it helps our mind focus on the breath and it helps it not wander as much. So when you really focus on your breath, it kind of mainstreams your mind. Okay, and while you're breathing, I want you to visualize any stress that you might have in your body. Visualize it moving through your body and leaving out your extremities, okay? So out your fingertips, out your feet, any stress that you have accumulated over over this class over the day over the week just imagine it just like leaving your body okay. now i want you to bring your focus to these little nuggets I'm gonna leave you with. As you master a Torah text, your soul absorbs its divine light and the Torah nourishes your soul inside like food. The most intimate bond you can have with God is through studying his word. Okay. That the closest we're ever going to get to God is by studying his Torah. Now, if I were to summarize the class in five words, it would be, you are what you eat. Okay. Sit with that for a minute. It's literally what we talked about this whole class. You are what you eat. Physically and spiritually. What you nourish your soul with, that's who you will be. Take a deep breath. Bring your attention back to your breath. In through your nose, out through your mouth. You can go back to the breath count if it helps. Slowly start to notice any sounds, smells, sensations in your body. And when you're ready, you can gently open your eyes. Deep breath. Okay, my friends, how are we feeling? How are we doing? Good. Any other questions we have? Listen, I look at, look at me. 11.50 or whatever time it is for you. <laughs> um, we have a couple minutes if you have any questions. If not, have an amazing week. Um, continue, I guess my, my message for this week is to continue notice, noticing the knocks on your door. Okay. Cause that's like a lifetime of work. Um, and if it's something that you feel like you can do, it doesn't even have to be every single day or consistent, but the more consistent you'll be, the more it will ha- affect change and affect how we think, um, pick up a book five minutes, Literally, guys, five minutes, not more, right? I could say ten minutes, twenty minutes. What's it, you? Everyone has to, no, because that is not sustainable for us right now. Like, don't bite off more than you can chew. Two to five minutes, and and limit it to that because then it's something that you can actually make sustainable. Baby steps, okay? Um, okay, there is one question. Where does davening come in between Torah and mitzvahs, food or clothes? Davening would be considered a mitzvah. Um, and we will actually, the the Tanya does go into davening in a couple chapters, um, but davening also is something that is very, very powerful when you're doing it, kind of is, stops being powerful when you're done, right? It's a very in the moment experience. It's very, it's not intellectual. It's much more spiritual. It's a much more um, like, Ecstasy, almost. If you get into davening properly, Torah, because it's knowledge and it's thought, you have to continue digesting it to stay, to have it to, to stay with you. Um, okay. Someone suggested Chayenu. Yes, lots of good short bits to learn for sure. That's an excellent resource. Um, but doesn't davening change you? Yes, and mitzvos change you also. Okay. Davening and mitzvos change you, but they cha- change you in the moment, okay? And if we become the type of people that continuously are doing mitzvahs, then we become that person. And remember, we are going to be delving into mitzvahs and the amazing effect it has on us, you gotta, you gotta stick with me for 30 chapters. Can you do it? <laughs> We're gonna get there. Um, but it, it does affect you, but when it's happening, when you take the clothing off, when you're done the mitzvah, it still, okay, it's tricky because it still has the effect. Let's say you give tzedakah, right? The tzedakah you give is still going to have the lasting effect for that person that you gave it to because this is their sustenance, right? So I do, I don't want to say like you do a mitzvah and then like after the mitzvah, like it's like nothing ever happened. It does affect change, but it doesn't become part of you like Torah does. Okay. So stick with me and we'll, we'll learn more about that. Is learning too much in one day bad? I actually think that's a very, very good question because, of course, inherently we'd say, of course not. How could learning be bad? But it can be bad if we are using it as either an escape for the rest of our responsibilities or we just have the wrong intentions of why we're learning. Okay. So, I, and wrong intention doesn't make learning bad. It just, ask yourself, like, is this something that you actually could do and still take care of your family and still do your responsibilities and still be the, what you need to be? Or did you decide that I'm going to learn five hours a day because I'm escaping what I have to also actually accomplish in the rest of my life? Because do does that make sense? Like inherently learning isn't bad, right? But if you're learning when, you know, you should be really feeding your family or cooking dinner, or putting your kids to bed or whatever, then no, you should not be learning. If like, you know, like I actually, I don't know if anyone, but like I've noticed like with my mother, right? Like when we grew up, like she wasn't like learning or davening all day, like she was taking care of us. But now as her kids are older, like all of a sudden, I'm like, she always has a chayenu in her hand. She's davening, she's learning because it's appropriate for her now. She has the time, right? She's not, meet, she doesn't have to be doing, she doesn't have a, a, a young family or responsibility to take care of. So stage of life matters, right? If you have a, a bunch of young kids or, you know, or you're, you're a caregiver or whatever, then no, you shouldn't be learning all day, right? But if you move through life, your family's grown, you're, you're you know, you don't have as many responsibilities. Of course use that time, right? Use the time to learn if you can. Okay. Um, I think we have time for one last question. So is Torah part of the three intellectual capacities of the soul and mitzvahs or part of the seven emotional capacities? Or are they totally separate? Okay. Um, Torah, you use your three intellectual capacities when you learn Torah. Okay. So first you're going to be, first it's like you just like the idea, right? And you don't really like you hear an idea, but you don't know anything about it. Then you're going to analyze it. You're going to discuss it. You're going to talk about it with someone, right? That's Bina, right? That's understanding. You're understanding the concept. Das is when you actually take what you learned and live by it. That's totally internalization of Torah study. So Chachma Bina Das and 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 Das is also works with also meditation, right? You, you're really meditating on these concepts. You're really like spending the time so that you internalize it and it becomes part of you. And then all, it's all connected. Once you do that, what happens? Then your emotions are born. Right? So you're using your three intellectual capacities to learn Torah, which, like we learned, what you think about is what you're going to care about. Right? Then those things are going to produce emotions, which will then produce actions. So nothing happens in a vacuum. Right? It all one step leads to the next. Did I answer the question? Okay, guys, you're awesome. Thanks for being here. Um, as always the recording will be up on YouTube in a few hours or tonight, depending on when I can get it done, but usually within the day and you are welcome to share that with anybody who wants, who wants it. And I will see you here next week. Take care.